0: Ledger is a writing podcast and a place where you can go to enjoy a little bit of temporary sadness. My name is Austin Wilson. Welcome to the show. As you can see by the title, I'm chatting with Max Booth III from Ghoulish Books today. Also a writer, he wrote a book called Maggots Screaming, which we talk about, and how the New York Times, well, they didn't read it, but maybe they will. We don't really know. Uh, We also talk about some other books coming out from Ghoulish Books. We talk about what it means to be gross, And just gross enough. And for Max, how just gross enough is maximum, no pun intended, amount of grossness. And a whole lot more, including why the hell we write in the first place. And put stories out there into the ether for people to read, maybe a lot of good stuff, including a a story he wrote called Indiana Death Song, which I read right before we recorded the show, coming out in his book, Abnormal Statistics, out from Apocalypse Party, which you can pre-order now. The links will be in the show notes, and uh, I talk about them at the end of the show as well. Um, So give it a listen, like, subscribe, say you know five stars, rate it everywhere, tell your friends about it. Uh, Check me out on Twitter, Austin R. Wilson, and ledger underscore books, and go to austinrwilson.com. I also hang out a lot on the Ghoulish Books Discord, which I will link to in the show notes, and it's linked everywhere on Max's social media and my social media as well. So if you want to say hi, chat about writing, chat about books, chat about a lot of stuff, swing by there. Um, I have a couple stories coming out in February of next year, 2023, with Black Hair Press in their uh, Valentine's Day anthology. It's going to be a, you know, horror Valentine's Day anthology. I just found out I'll have two stories in there, so make sure you check that out when that comes out. But as for now, here's my chat with Max Booth III. I've been reading Maggots Screaming this week, um, and I have a few other of your books, but also because you sent me... uh, the, the book that's coming out abnormal statistics. Uh, I did read that story uh, that you mentioned today. So I do want to talk about that. Um, but the big, the big first question that popped up is I, I keep hearing, and I I've been reading horror, you know, my, my entire life. Um, I keep seeing people refer to splatterpunk uh, as a genre that is associated with some of the stuff that you've done. And does that seem, Accurate to you? Do you think you write splatterpunk or what does that even mean?
1: I think some of the stuff I've written is splatterpunk. I do think, uh, the term Splatterpunk might be misunderstood by a lot of people who use it. Yeah. Because I think there's a big difference between Splatterpunk and, say, Extreme Who. Because a lot of people, they say Splatterpunk and they just mean, oh, it's super bloody and disgusting. And that's not really what Splatterpunk is. Splatterpunk began, and I want to say the 80s, maybe the late 70s. And it was uh, it's a some movement basically challenging ideas that were like typical and doing something punk with it a lot of people kind of disregard the uh, the punk and spladdle punk so i do have some stuff i think would qualify like my novel touch the night which is really much uh an, what would be called an a cap book i would say yeah i mean it go it has a lot to say about uh police and stuff like that. So I would consider that punk because it has the punk aspect and it's also pretty uh gruesome.
0: I so that the punk aspect of it, the subversion.
1: Mm-hmm. Where
0: you're you're subverting tropes, you're subverting accepted, I guess, plot lines or or character development. Um, talk to me about how that informs some of your stuff then. Subverting uh the things that uh, because you know, in the 70s and 80s, um, the people who are coming out and are being considered splatterpunk or maybe considered splatterpunk, people like Clive Barker and Kathy Koja, and um, is, is your work subverting in similar ways to that stuff, or uh, do you think you're pushing it in a different direction? You know, I have no idea. I <laughs> I, I, I
1: tend not to like when I'm writing something, I tend not to like have those types of thoughts like oh yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna build some stuff today folks yeah. <laughs> it just kind of happens because i just maybe that's just the way my brain operates um because I, I do understand like a book like maggot screaming isn't really the most typical type of book well, most of my plots tend to sound um pretty stupid when you talk about them <laughs> like oh yeah this novella is about a family uh, stuck in a bathroom and that's it. <laughs> but uh, there's something about the like a tedious plot idea that sounds really exciting to me. I don't yeah. know quite why.
0: <laughs> well, a tedious plot idea. What do you mean by that? Family stuck in a bathroom. That doesn't sound tedious to me. That's very I straightforward. Not. I guess not.
1: It just it just it doesn't sound exciting. <laughs> it's yeah. What I, yeah. Like, well, you know, oh, yeah. A dad and a son just kind of hang out in, in the kitchen. <laughs>
0: Well, when you find like when you read Maggot Screaming and yeah. that that like they find a, a finger, this is like page two. Like mm-hmm. it's not a spoiler. Like it literally doesn't take it doesn't pause, it just gets going. Um, which hilariously, as I was reading Maggot Screaming versus the the story that we were taught that I mentioned a little bit, which is called Indiana Death Song at the beginning of Abnormal Statistics. Um Abnormal Statistics, which is a short story, um, is paced I would say slower than Maggot Screaming is, which is a yeah. which is a novel. Talk to me about that. And that is it a decision? Like you you were just saying you don't sit down and say I'm going to subvert some shit. It just kind of happens.
1: With something like Maggot Screaming, I'm I I quite enjoy writing things about just a few limited cast, a limited cast, in a limited setting, talking. <laughs> Those, yeah. that's, that's what excites me. I love to introduce like a problem, or well, a mystery, and then I just like to, wit- like, create a scenario where they have to try to talk it out. Yeah. And so when you, when you have something like Maggot Screaming, which I knew was going to be a book, so I knew. I had no time to really explore things like with conversations. And I do think the way I write dialogue can sometimes seem fast paced, but can peel that to Indiana death song, which I imagine does read as having a slow pace, especially because it doesn't have much dialogue in it.
0: Yeah. It's, it's a lot of internal, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of internal stuff. The dialogue in it does all read, very accurately though. Uh, yeah. And true as I'm from Indiana. I don't know if people listening know you're from Indiana. It, uh, it all real read at, very true to me.
1: <laughs> really at in Indiana. Who are you
0: from? Uh, I grew up near, um, a place called Muncie. Uh, I grew okay. up in Hartford city. It's, it's pretty close to where James Dean was born. Okay. Uh, fair amount, but I moved away from there, but I still live in Indiana just up uh, in the north now. But, um, it's yeah. a weird place.
1: <laughs> I grew up in uh, lake station.
0: Yeah. I was going to ask a little bit about that. I, and I was going to sort of pace that out towards the end of the, the, the episode, but let's just jump into it right now. Absolutely. Um, Abnormal statistics, uh, is the, the new collection that you have, <laughs> that's going to be coming out. Um, it's coming out from a place called apocalypse party. And the first story, um, you said to me, um, you're super proud of it. You think it's one of the best, if not the best things you've ever written. um, and I wanted to make sure I got it read before we before we chatted. And I did. I read it today um, and I loved it. Well, thank uh, you. And when you said the thing about writing characters talking, it's yeah. sort of a light kind of flipped on in my head because that's a, a thing that I love in my writing is. <laughs> yeah. Having people discuss a thing and, and having it not seem plot driven, like the discussions, but still it's there in the background and um, abnormal statistics without giving too much away. Uh, it's super evocative. I think of depression, um, a kind of teenage misery and anxiety, um, that I identified with quite a bit. Uh, I grew up dealing with anxiety and depression and, and uh, ended up getting help for those things, but it was a lot of it with some places that aren't <laughs> uh, actual, you know, real life things that I know of. Um, a lot of it felt very real to me, almost like it wasn't going to be a, a, a horror story that I know Max Booth writes. Um, talk to me about that.
1: Yeah. So I've been trying to write this thing for a long time because it's mostly based on my own childhood. And for the longest time, it wasn't going to be a genre piece. It was just going to be a like a coming of age type of novel. I had, always in my head, it was going to be a novel and it wasn't going to be genre. And I struggled a long time trying to, uh, write that. And the solution that finally clicked in my head was it doesn't, it, it can be genre. Why not make it genre? Why not take all these real things that happened to me, things I've shaped my whole life and then add some genre to it, add something spooky to it so once that clicked in my brain and I began thinking about what that could be, everything began moving pretty fast. And um, the last thing that really like I was struggling with was coming up with enough story to make it a novel until one day I was sitting at my desk trying to write it. And I thought, well, <laughs> why does it have to be a novel? Why can't it be a novella? And once that Realization hit. I mean, everything else quickly finished with the book, this the novella. I wasn't always intending to put it in this collection. I didn't know what I was going to do with it. But as we were shaping together the table of contents of the collection with my uh, editor Ben Devos at uh, Ben at Apocalypse Reality, we discovered most of the stories had a theme of dysfunctional families. So it seemed like i had to put this in this novella into the collection it made so much sense to include it because without the sterileys in this collection no without this novella the sterileys in the collection would not even exist i would say really i think so because i tend to have a fascination with uh books about families sterileys about families and i imagine a lot of that comes from uh my childhood and things that have happened, which is what is the novella is about.
0: (laughs) Yeah. um, So I want to, I don't want to spoil it for people, um, but I I do want to talk about those things specifically. And, and I, one of my questions um, was how long had this story been in your head? Because I noticed something, which is your Twitter accounts, your personal Twitter account. It's handle is give me your teeth.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I'll say just to introduce the uh, novella a little bit. Yeah. It's about a a teenager living in a casino hotel with his mom and dad. He's been taken out of school, uh, dragged away from his uh, social life, friends, anything he spends every day living in a hotel in this terrible side of town, just casinos and shit and nothing for a kid to be at. And, um, there's some some teeth stuff that happens, which is where really the genre part that it comes in. And my my tw- the, the 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 idea of writing about this aspect of my childhood has probably been around since it was happening to me. But the uh, the teeth stuff that was one of the last things things I thought of. <laughs> I think it might have been because of my twiddle name when trying to conceive of like what type of genre spooky thing could I have in this book at one point I must've like, just was reminded of what my twiddle name was and thought, well, what if something with teeth? <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, uh, the, the origin of my twiddle name is not as exciting. It's from a, um, I used to read cracked.com oh, back yeah. when I was a, a teenager living in the hotel. <laughs> and, um, there was a columnist named uh, Sean Baby. And he had he his his big thing was he would take normal looking um, images like you sometimes advertisements and he would create these creepy as fuck uh, captions as if that's what they were saying. And he took one of the um, the Bilal King commercial, the, the you know the King, the creepy mascot. Yeah, and he took an image of the the king standing over a woman sleeping, and the caption was "Give me your teeth" in red font, and I, that always just made me laugh. So that when I began making a, a Twiddle account, I just that's what it came to mind.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, it uh, it goes along well with the non genre aspects, and one of the reasons, um, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of the a lot of the anxiety and that like embarrassment. Honestly, there was a, there was a point in the story. It not had nothing to do with the thing that I experienced. I remember driving home from, I think I was driving home from therapy after I had, uh, checked myself into a, a treatment facility for, for mental health and I ran out of gas. And I remember feeling this shame and embarrassment, uh, about this like failure that I had kind of heaped on my shoulders and it wasn't really my fault. Um, I was a kid, uh, but the embarrassment you talk about in the story, that was one of the reasons why, like, the, the that anxiety and that that sort of teenage misery seemed so real to me and mm-hmm. so memorable to me that I was like, man, I would be shocked if Max doesn't have similar experiences to me or that this story is insanely personal to him. But also, I know you're a good writer, so I, that was something that we, I knew we could talk about either way. Uh, because yeah. it it comes across as believable.
1: Well, thank you. I'm glad it does. It's definitely something I knew I couldn't I would always be stressed out about until I finally wrote it so I could move on from it just because of how long I've been trying to crack this nut. And plus, it's just, you know, it's like a traumatic thing that happened. and it helps to kind of wash it away with finishing something and getting it done and out.
0: Yeah, I I agree. Uh, I'm excited for people to read it. I thought it was awesome. Is writing the thing that that makes you feel the most like yourself?
1: I I think so. I um, until this one novella, I would probably never say like, oh, I need I use writing as like a as a therapy method. But that novella specifically, I think was. But usually, I I, I like to write just because it's fun. It's a fun thing to do, and I don't like doing a lot of things. I don't, I don't like leaving the house. I don't, I don't like doing things, but I do like writing. That seems fun to me. So I think I'm lucky in the fact that I've, I've found something that I do enjoy. Because maybe not everyone uh, does, and then they just live bad, bad lives.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, maybe, uh, were you were you writing? Uh, in the hotel. Yeah, as a, as a child, you were.
1: I was, yeah, I was writing, um, reading so many books, um, but yeah, like sometimes it, ha- it doesn't happen as often now. But when I was first getting published, I would like some of my uh, friends and colleagues and publishing, they would always say things like, "How how are you getting anything else? You're so young. How is this possible?" And I mean, yeah. it's not like a a magic trick or anything, just a lot of people don't really begin writing until they're in the twenties. Like they don't really begin trying to submit full publication. But I spent all of my teens doing nothing but being in a hotel room writing and writing all day long, so I had plenty of uh, prep time, I ha- earlier than most people, I think. So I I do believe that helped kind of get me a uh, an early uh, jump on things.
0: So do you think, um, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's as cut and dry as the the like 10,000 hours thing that people talk about, but I, I do think there's an aspect of that that seems true because mm-hmm. um, that sort of sounds like what you went through where like you're spending all this time early on focusing on maybe even if you didn't know it at the time, craft and being able to tell stories is... Is that something that you've noticed that, okay, I got the like reps in my repetition led to me being able to, to understand how to tell a story, which led to me being able to publish earlier.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think anyone just begins writing and then they'll great. You just have to keep doing it. You have to keep being bad at it until you will not bad at it. It's like, you know, taking a basketball and trying to just immediately do a three throw, right? You have to practice. I mean, not me. I will never be able to, to make it until I at basketball. But I don't like anything. I mean, I don't like playing basketball, so I'm not going to keep doing it. I like writing. And so I kept doing
0: it. <laughs> yeah. So that's interesting. Um, do you have moments where you hate writing or is it always it's something you like to do, even when it's hard?
1: I don't think I dislike writing no i know a lot of people will say like i prefer having written than writing i think i'm real the opposite real once it's done that's when i begin stressing out about like the things i could change or the things yeah. that are no longer in my control like once a book's out it's out and you're done with it and that seems a little uh anxiety inducing but i love the whole process of of creating a book and building a manuscript and just you, it's just you and the page and nothing else. You're alone in an empty room. That's great.
0: Has that stress ever led to you working on something continually and not allowing yourself to stop where you're like, okay, I know if I stop, I'm not going to be able to love this thing the same way as I love it right now while I'm working on it. Has that ever happened?
1: I would say my debut novel, uh, toxicity went through a lot of rewrites, I don't know if it was because of that or just because I was not satisfied with how it was landing. I was also really young. I began that when I was 12 and just kept rewriting it over and over. And it was published, I believe when I was 19. Um, But that was one I wrote a lot when I was in the hotel. Besides that, I don't think I um, prolong a book's writing if I don't have to just because Writing those last few pages, I don't think anything feels as good as that. Like when you have like ten thousand words left of a book and you just write it all in the crazy days, you have no idea what's going on, but you're so close to the end. I mean, there's nothing more thrilling than that. I think.
0: See, I think what I was writing as a twelve-year-old. Well, I know, I I know, I didn't have the attention span then to continually rewrite something, uh, like it sounds like you did. Um, which that to me seems special, like something that you innately had that drive, or maybe it's because of your, what situation you're in. Uh, I don't know. That took me a long time to pick up that ability to be like, all right, I'm just going to rewrite this thing over and over and over again until I get it.
1: I wish I had that now. I do not. Once it's done, it's like, okay, it's done. Not looking at it again.
0: <laughs> so, do you think the your inability now to just continually rewrite is because you're a publisher?
1: It absolutely is. Um, I tend not to have a ton of time to write any meal. Yeah, <laughs> surprisingly. Um, so, we've been doing the publishing company since we launched in 2012. But I do think I had meal time to write, maybe because I wasn't exactly treating public like ghoulish books or perpetual motion machine as like a job job because I had a job already. I was doing the night shift at a hotel. But once I quit the hotel back in 2020, I began really like settling down and focusing and thinking of the publishing company as my job. Like this is what we need to do. So I spent a lot of time focusing on the publishing company and trying to grow that and get those books in front of people it doesn't leave a ton of time to write. I try to write something every day. This year has been a shit show. So I haven't written much this year. Especially the second half of this year. But I do try. My my Every day my goal is to wake up at like 6am. And write until we have breakfast. Like at 8 or 9. And then spend the rest of the day doing publishing stuff. Uh, doesn't always happen. Mostly because you might find this surprising if you tend to stay up till about 2 a.m. it's really difficult (laughs) to wake up at six i'm scheduling.
0: that's a shocker
1: i don't know the solution
0: (laughs) (laughs) i hope you figure that out man that's a tough one it's frustrating (laughs) (laughs) yeah that uh i'm i'm super interested in in the ways that being a publisher has changed how you think of your own writing um not just the the ability to continually write something but um, thinking about the things that you want to publish. Um, and then whether you are then almost in a way like filtering out your own ideas, um, because some of your stuff, you know, it comes out through your, through your publishing company, but, um, abnormal statistics is coming from apocalypse party. That's not coming from, from you. Um, how does that affect how you think of your own writing? Not just how you actually write, but your, your perception of what you're doing.
1: Yeah. So I don't think it affects how I write, like you said. But the main thing it does affect is the the way I man, manage my time and how I promote things. I'm always really nervous that it might be pre- perceived that I am... Um, spending meal time promoting my own writing over say someone else's book that i am publishing because that's someone that's somebody who has trusted me to help the book find an audience so anytime i anytime i spend pushing something i've written it's always with a sense of like of, of guilt like okay just real fast also buy my stuff but let's go back to buying these books as well yeah so I do find it difficult to kind of balance those two things. I went a while without publishing with anyone else, but I went a few yields without publishing with anyone but my own press, just due to the fact that I had a bunch of bad experiences with little small presses, and a lot of them still owe me money, and, <laughs> <laughs> and I just I got to, I don't know just a lot of bad. Experiences, which you know, I think has probably made me a, a better uh, press because I know how it feels to be uh, mistreated, so I tried right. to not do that. That's like my deepest uh <laughs> phobia, really, is to like become a bad press. Will autholds then go on podcasts and shit talk me? <laughs> <laughs> that will <evil> happen. <laughs> I'm going to budge while myself. Um, uh, Well, at least (laughs) you you didn't
0: say who it was. So, you know, that's a good thing. Um, At least uh, if that ever happens, maybe you'll never know.
1: Oh, I've definitely got on podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just trying to be a bit more tame these days.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the that struggle with I kind of understand some somewhat because I've had conversations with with writers or, or publishers or editors in the past where I talk about wanting to be more than just one thing, and and wanting to not just have writing be the thing that defines who I am, or, or not not just making myself do that one thing. But then there's that uh, that fear in the back of my head where it's like, do people perceive me as a writer, or are they just like, oh yeah, he's a podcaster, which is not a bad thing to be, but I know how much writing means to me, so that struggle between being both of these things where I'm like, no, no, I'm a writer, but I also do this thing. Is that something, like, do you fear that people would be like, Max is just ghoulish books and and no. forget your writing? No.
1: I'm okay. I would be okay with that. I'm I'm a little proud of ghoulish books than I am of my own writing, I would say. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I enjoy both a lot. I love the write. I love also to... Collaborate with Edel Reynolds and help Them get books out I would say publishing is way more Stressful than writing by A hundred percent just because With writing you don't really have anyone to let down But yourself but with uh, Publishing I mean I guess I could be concerned about letting down like apocalypse Pildy but I'm not (laughs) The advance is already cleared
0: (laughs) Not worried about it No. (laughs) well now you can move on to the next thing though i mean like not worrying about it i think i think part of it is you have to do that because mm-hmm. to do anything else would lead to madness maybe
1: <laughs> well i think if you're not concerned about if you if you run a small press and you will not constantly pacing around and just yanking roots out of your scalp about making sure these books uh you know find a find an audience and you don't disappoint the riddles that you were publishing you might get a bit lazy and content just to let them come out and nothing happen. right that's happened with us many times i mean it's we've had a few incidents well that's even happened recently due to my uh complete uh lack of motivation to get out of bed i mean it happens yeah. Not every book is going to come out with a successful, you know, launch, but I do know that books do not vanish after the release day. They continue right. to be out there, and they they'll still time to find an audience. So that is something I try to tell myself if I've kind of have slipped up a bit. Plus, it's also important to remind myself this company is run by two people in a kitchen. <laughs> Wheel will not penguin wheel triangle bests. all best this is my only job besides writing and uh screenwriting and stuff um my parent Lily michelle i mean she has a, she teaches dance all week long so i mean she has other things she's doing so i mean we we spend as much time as we possibly can on these on these books with the hopes that they make some type of movement At the very least, we hope we uh, have created a good experience for the writers we've published.
0: Yeah, and I like what you said, you know, books don't vanish after they're published. They have longer lives than that, and there's a lot of stuff now. I mean, if Twitter dies, who knows what will happen after that, but the the ways that you can find things now, even outside of that place. um, I mean, I found your work because of because of your, your publisher, like, because you've, of ghoulish, like that's how I, mm-hmm. I found your books. And then that led me to other people's books. And, um, most of the ones that I, that I ended up gravitating towards weren't brand new maggot screaming was when I found it, but the stuff that I bought other than maggot screaming, uh, had been older stuff. Um, yeah. it's just a lot bigger possibility of that now.
1: Yeah, I mean, we try to drive as much audience as we can to the uh, the website we have. but We have all the books listed, and I don't even think they have the publication dates listed like on the, uh, the catalog page. So n- no one knows, like, oh, this book's new and that one's not new. The same goes with all the – we do a lot of physical events every week almost, if not every other week. Like, we have an event this weekend, and we sell books at these places – and the people who walk up to them they don't go oh which one is new they just yeah. look at what which one looks the coolest right so i mean books continue to exist i mean look at this one book i don't know if you know it know it um the the holy bible's been around a while
0: <laughs> oh so i think it's old right <laughs> yeah i mean it
1: came out what in the fucking 1920s i don't know
0: was, yeah a while ago at least and it's
1: people still read it i'm told so i mean <laughs> Books can continue to uh, obtain a readership yeah. in the future.
0: And you are re-releasing um, the title just flew right out of my head. It's the cover with the hornets in the face. What is the name of the <laughs> oh, book? <laughs> Cody Goodfellows' Pulphic Union. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and you're re-releasing one. Um, yeah. that. When, when did that it come came out,
1: out It came out in 2010, not by us. It came out through a press called a uh, Swallowdown Press. It was a publishing company uh, operated by Jeremy Robert Johnson, who now just writes. He he wrote the book The, the Loop, which is what he's most popular with, Phil. Yeah. But yeah, um, Philfic Union came out through that press. That press went down, and that book has been out of print for like a decade until now. And I've just, I've been friends with Cody for a few years now. We've, we met at conventions. I've published his uh, Schultz fiction and anthologies. And then we did a novella called The Flying Nun a few years ago. Great novella. And that really like bonded a relationship with us. And I reached out to him and I said, Hey, what's with this prolific union people talk about? I just wanted to read it to be honest. It sounded great. And I didn't <laughs> yeah. want to spend like two hundred bucks on eBay for a copy, so I just said, "Hey, <laughs> can I read it full consideration?"
0: Shoot that PDF <laughs> over here.
1: So you sent it to me is is amazing. It's it's about these. Um, These two rednecky Brethels and the Brethel in law going to the woods to check on uh, Thulmethyl, who's been like out of communication, and but the mom's missing from the cabin they go to, and they uh, it leads to some spooky bees and a lot of uh, communism. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well if you think about bees they are probably the most um communist uh, insects around man so right. i mean it is it's, it's what i would describe as a communist thrill novel <laughs> it's, that's awesome i don't know how much else to describe without spoiling anything but it's really gruesome yep. um disgusting really fast-paced while being an extremely long book it's like almost 500 pages <laughs> long <laughs> Oh, wow. But it's excellent. I am so glad that we all the ones to give it a new home. And the front cover is amazing. It's an original painting by Frank Walds. W-A-L-L-S. Um, great cover. Not a lot of people are a fan of the cover. They say <laughs> mostly those who are afraid of, of holds, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a pretty disgusting cover, which is weird because there's no gore <laughs> like it's it's not yeah. but it is absolutely a, a cover that i think did what it was supposed to do which yeah. was catch my eye and intrigue me might upset some people but that's the world we live in that's gonna happen every once in a while
1: recently on um social media when we posted the cover again this Pilson said it needed a a, a trigger ruling and and I my immediately my immediate thought was they were making a joke like oh man this Kevin is so scaly you have to you have to give people a heads up. I didn't uh, realize they met because of the um, how do you pronounce it
0: tryptophobia. Tryptophobia, yeah, I think yeah. That's
1: what it is. So that's what they were referring to. I had no idea until they blocked me and then <laughs> and then began posting on the little calendar. Everyone should go block ghoulish books. The one sensitive to uh. tryptophobia. That's not what that's not what I thought you meant. <laughs> you will make it a joke i was playing into the joke you made
0: well it's it is a an unsettling cover but yeah i think that well especially where we are in horror now you're seeing resurgence of those i mean paperbacks from hell is the the book that ended, that got published uh, through quirk with grady hendrix and will erickson that really celebrated those covers from the 70s and the 80s and I think you're seeing a, a resurgence to some of those types of covers. And I think this absolutely falls into that camp where it's yeah. meant to be shocking.
1: <laughs> I agree. And going back to like the original question you asked me, I would describe this as a splatelpunk novel too. It's really, yeah. it's really political and uh, gruesome.
0: Yeah. yeah. I'm excited to read it. Uh, the second I saw the cover, I was like, oh, yep, I'm going to read that thing. Um, but uh, that also... I had another question and I've sort of talked about this in the past with some of my other guests. Um, the, the challenge to balance between too disgusting or just disgusting enough, um, that that challenge of making sure the reader is like, Oh, this is disgusting. And I'm going to keep reading it versus this is disgusting. And I've got to put this down. <laughs> How do you how do you go about it as a writer, and then how do you go about it as a publisher?
1: Oh, I embrace it, and I and I encourage anyone to be as disgusting as possible in any given moment.
0: There's no, there's no limit for you.
1: I don't think so. No, I mean, no. I think I think it depends on what type of tone and what type of book you will try and write. The yeah. stuff I tend to write, I don't have many restrictions when it comes to that. Um, which may be why agents don't respond to my emails. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I always encourage, even in my edits of books that we books that we have published uh, published. Um, if it's a book that does deal with g- gross stuff, I usually will add a comment like, "Hey, you could you could expand on this, you know?
0: <laughs> you can make this grosser."
1: Exactly. I don't know. I I feel like if you're gonna go feel it, why not really go feel it?
0: Yeah, yeah. But I even you're so you've had a book adapted. Would you describe that book as the most disgusting thing that you could think of, or was that I don't want to say tamer, but mainstream mainstream film or like TV, the gross factor tends to be lower <laughs> than. <laughs> the stuff that I've read of yours uh, and and especially hearing you say like, go grosser. um, Yeah. Is that, is there a time when you're writing where you're like, okay, I I am going to be less gross here. I don't think it serves the story. And this is a story that I think should get a wider release. um, So I need to make it a little less gross.
1: So I don't think I've ever had the uh, well, this won't get a wide release type of mindset because I know that full fact. I don't because when I was writing maggot screaming, before I really like got into it, I thought this is, this is going to be a good book. This is going to be the one that, you know, gives me an agent, gives me like the, a big publishing deal. This is going to be the book. And then halfway through it, I realized, nope, <laughs> this isn't, <this> isn't good. <laughs> no, go- it is not. <laughs> I'm not, I didn't even bother sending it out because I knew how, with how gross it had gotten, there was yeah. no way. And the, the option of restricting that didn't cross my mind because then it wouldn't be the same book I set out to write. But I'm discussing this though. I'm going to spoil a lot of, we need to do something. So if anyone hasn't okay. watched or read the book, Oh, well, it's been out for a few <laughs> years now. So the the one relevant thing I can mention is in the book, the, the sun dies and he is rotting in the bathtub with the family until the dad decides we need to eat this body. And he <laughs> pre- he, he proceeds to uh, get a piece of glass, cut the quilts open, and then eat the inside of the kid's body. And he then vomits on the ground and, and slips on his own vomit and rolls around in it. That is not in the movie. <laughs> I wanted it to be in the movie, but when I when I was going through drafts with my uh, my film uh, agent, he said we can't include this. <laughs> I said I think we should. He said I'm pretty confident I can sell the screenplay to somebody, but if this if this is in the screenplay, I am not as confident. <laughs> and I said that makes sense, so I cut. That's when I did cut it that's about the only time I can think of uh, censoring myself due to um, being afraid of like a vital release not happening.
0: Yeah. I think, I mean, I, to me, that's not censoring. I know what you mean when you say it that way, Yeah, but the, I, I, I do like thinking about the audience in any way, as you're putting a, a story together or like worrying about the story, I think that is super dangerous. Just as a, as a way for you to to tell, like you said, to tell the story that it, that it should be.
1: Yeah, I don't think anyone should have, like, the audience in mind at all when they write something. Um, with that said, though, I'm going to contradict myself a little bit. I forget <laughs> yeah. who said this once, but they said you should try to write with, like, one person in mind. Like, yeah. like pretend like you they're going to be the one who reads this and try to, like, I don't know. So I, I do that a lot and I try to think of how like they might um, respond to the text or so what they might be expecting and how I can maybe surprise them. Yeah. So that, that, I do find that helpful, but I do think in like the, the really beginning of like conceiving of a book any idea of someone reading it should not should not even be a thing in your brain. You should just whatever little crazy chemicals all floating around inside your skull, you should just let them do what they do until something comes out that is completely you. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that isn't uh, persuaded by oh but well, what what is the New York Times gonna think? They're not gonna think anything. <laughs> if we're not gonna read maggots Screaming.
0: Yep. They're not gonna read this. <laughs> <laughs> No, I agree with you. And I, that, that concept of, of telling the story as if you're telling it to a, a person, I think is, is so awesome and very helpful because mm-hmm. you do want humans <laughs> to be able to, to read the story or to interact with the story. And um thinking about surprising a person or the, the ways that you can utilize all your storytelling tools. Those are good things, but yeah, you do want to, Definitely steer clear of the idea of being like, "Well, I really want everyone to like this because it's not going to happen." Gonna... It Doesn't matter what you <laughs> <laughs> Like, um,
1: if, especially if you're writing something, say funny. Yeah. Like, maggots is feeling really much a comedic book, so you kind of think, "Does this make me laugh?" Yes. Do you? Do I think this will make this one Ezra Wilson laugh? Yes. Okay, then that's all I need to know. Yep. If if it's not making me laugh, if I don't think it's going to make this one Ezra Wilson laugh, then maybe I need to keep tweaking it. And that's probably like the best judgment you can have. And that, that's all you can hope for. And then maybe other people will respond to it. Who knows?
0: Yeah, that was uh, in the last chat I had with Stephanie Waitovich, we talked about how you can't control what the audience thinks and that that's a good thing because you can just move on. <laughs> don't even don't even give energy to the to the thought because it doesn't matter. Just tell the story. I mean,
1: you can always, like, slip into the DMs and be like, hey, I saw that review you posted.
0: And I'm going to kill your family! It's <laughs> a bad idea. Don't do that. <laughs> Definitely a bad idea. Also, do you read reviews or do you uh, sadly. skip them? I, I, would you love do?
1: To, I would love to skip them, but I'm way too egotistical and obsessed. And I can't yeah. stop. I would love to stop. Do you have any tricks to help me s- not do that the
0: the biggest thing for me uh every time i've ever read a review of something that i've written i've i've literally never gotten it's never helped me write ever Mm
1: -hmm. yeah
0: and that's one of the things that i like stab into my own brain like doing this is not going to help you in any way if it's a good review it's not going to help you. If it's a bad review, it's double not going to help you. So you might as well either go right or I you well, don't even go right. Go play a video game. <laughs> like do yeah. something other than reading the review.
1: I don't think many good reviews have ever impacted me at all. Like I don't even like feel good after I read a good review. I'm like, yeah, all right. But then I'll seek bad reviews and maybe I'm just like, yeah, I think I'm addicted to feeling bad. <laughs> <laughs> what's, it's what this is, because if I see a bad if I see a bad review, I'm like, okay, yes, and I'll click it and read it, and I'll go, this fucking guy. But like, <laughs> I, it's something I enjoy secretly. Maybe I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with my brain.
0: <laughs> I wonder. Yeah, is it because you have a you feel the need to prove people wrong, or or do, do you are you just like fuck this person uh, because I know I'm good or.
1: No, it, it, would, it wouldn't be that. Not that? <laughs> no, I don't think I've ever thought... No, I am, I am great. I don't
0: think I've ever thought I've, that. I've never thought that either. <laughs> um, and that's probably one of the reasons reasons why I'm a writer. Maybe, maybe yeah. for you too. I've never once been like, man, I am awesome.
1: I don't know. In my decade of publishing, I have encountered many many writers who thought they built the best new riddle of all time. And sadly, they have all been proven wrong quickly
0: yeah it's not it's just not it's not possible uh
1: going back to something we discussed about how has publishing impacted my writing i would say that it's impacted it that way bill i don't have any type of ego about how good i might be i i i've seen it from the other side and i know how realistic everything is so maybe i don't have such high uh expectations for my own writing because of that i understand how i mean it's it's not a competition but everyone who is writing and publishing every year every month is vast and there's just no room for everyone to get read or get the attention it's just it's it's chaos and once in a while you get lucky and maybe you have a uh, a great Frank Kevil that someone retweets, <laughs> and then <laughs> and then someone on TikTok is like, "This book made me depressed. I'm gonna shoot it with a machine gun." And then that TikTok video gets a million views, and a bunch of people. Red- children buy it so they can post a TikTok tock showing them that they've also bought it, but then they don't, they don't read it because no one reads anything. It's all, I mean, I don't know if you've known one thing publishing has taught me is no one reads books. Now they just buy them so they can post photos of them. And then they Talk stack them. them.
0: That's it. Like, yep. look what
1: I got. Okay. Away you go.
0: <laughs> away you go book. You over here now. Yeah. That's um, I remember talking with a friend of mine about, about writing uh, he wasn't a writer, but we were talking about like doing creative shit. And one of the things I, I said, I said some kind of self-deprecating joke about my writing. And he said, but you don't really think that. And I was like, well, I mean, what do you mean? And he was like, because you submit your work and mm-hmm. you have like, you have had work published. So you don't really think that. And I was like, listen, man, that's not why I said it. I didn't want you to fix me. <laughs> Cause <laughs> yeah. that's not possible, <laughs> but I don't know. It, it almost feels like, I know there are personalities out there that exist where they don't feel the need to kind of like apologize for their, their statement of like, I wrote a story and, and I think you should read it. Mm-hmm. I don't have that. <laughs> I don't have that personality yeah. because for me, it's like, I, 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 I struggle with the idea of being like, I'm, I'm good enough for you to read. Um, but I don't struggle with the idea of knowing that I have to write and put the work out for people to maybe read
1: that makes sense i think my whole mindset with a lot of that is i like to i like to perform i like to do stuff on stages and make people yeah. laugh and i like to entertain people so yeah. most of my books the objection the objective really is to entertain someone i mean that isn't what i'm thinking about when i'm beginning to write it i'm not thinking about an audience but at a certain point it's the you should always write for yourself but then publish for everybody else so at a certain point the objective goes from create something to entertain other people so when i go out and promote something it's not like i think you should read this because i wrote it it's more like hey i think this might you might enjoy it i think this might entertain you this, yeah. might, this might help you pass the time until you have to clock in at your shitty job. you will <laughs> right. see your little goddamn husband who hasn't gotten off his couch in a, a weekend. I don't know. I'm just making up yeah.
0: families. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I think that's a, a good way to think about it, though. And the other like the other side of that for me is I know how much fun I have when I read mm-hmm. a book or a story where I'm like, man, this was fucking awesome. And the idea of wanting to do that for other people and being like, I bet you could have fun with this. Not not necessarily because I wrote it, obviously, for some of the things that I I promote or write and put out there, it is because, yes, I wrote this and I want people to to experience it. But yeah, just uh, I know how much fun it is to read a fun story. Here's one of those.
1: Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think that should always be what you have in mind at the end. The goal should be is to let someone else have fun. Now, how that ties into in the end, the death song, I do not know because that's <laughs> that not a fun thing for anyone. Not
0: fun. No. no,
1: but it I was glad I wrote it at the same time. So, like, anything we're discussing right now, it's not like this is the only way anyone could do no, anything. No. Because to contradict all of that, I just finished this novella. That it's just a depressing, bleak time. But if, yeah, but it was necessarily to write. So then why publish it? I don't know.
0: <laughs> I do think there's that, that like that thing my friend said, like, but you submit your stories. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, there is obviously a part of me somewhere, probably buried deep. That, that is like, you're good enough to be published. Yeah. Um, above that, You know, my conscious mind is and I'm sure this is rooted in all kinds of shit that I dealt with when I was a kid, you know, my anxiety and depression and body image uh, problems that I struggled with and all kinds of stuff. But I've also talked to a lot of people where it's like, well, well, what am I going to do not right? I know that that's not the case. So yeah,
1: it's also good to remind myself when I'm having similar thoughts like, well, one day I'm going to be a skeleton. Do I want to right. have done something? Do I want to have like exercised these thoughts in my head and made something with them so that several people can also read and express and shill? Well, do I want to just leave them in me and then die and rot? And that's it. Yep. You only have so much fucking time,
0: right? It's limited. And, and also from my perspective, as corny as this is going to sound, one of the reasons why you wrote that story, Indiana death song, uh, was so that I could read it and be like, "Shit, I recognize this kid." Shit, um, now I
1: now I feel bad. <laughs> no, but I mean, like,
0: legitimately, like reading a story like that and me being able to like almost time travel to yeah. to what I felt like when I was in high school, and that is one of the reasons why the story exists. Um, which I think is a, is a cool thing. Like you, like you said, it's not a it's not a blast. <laughs> you know, I nope. I, it's not a it's not a parade but it was a story that affected me and i think that's one of the reasons why it exists and that's that's awesome to me that kind of shit that's even in the the moments when i'm just like man why am i why am i doing this um because that possibility exists that somebody's gonna read it and be like holy shit i recognize this i do yeah also i do think there's a lot
1: to be said about just something sad <laughs> like yeah. watching a super sad movie because i mean it's an emotion that you can especially with sadness i mean would you prefer feel something to happen to you directly and then just be sad for a while it was an easy right. or and mill uh, exciting maybe to kind of dip into something unrelated to you and let that emotion hit you but with the safety net of being able to just close the book and do something else right well it's like yeah, kind of a temporary sadness yeah Temporarily sadness is a great emotion. It's when you can't get rid of it that it kind of sucks.
0: <laughs> That's the bullshit one. That one's yeah. not fun. Um, well, I, I really loved the story. Uh, like I said, uh, I'm pumped to read the rest of the book. I, I read that one just to get ready for the for the podcast. And thank you. I've got some of your other stuff that I that I'm going through as well. Um, what are what's uh, Ghoulish have out right now that you you think people should pick up?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I talked about Philfic Union already. Um, Jessica McHugh has two books that just came out recently, Rabbits in the Gilden and Hills in the Hedgerow. These are two installments of a trilogy called the Gilding Guidebooks Trilogy. They're about um, a lot of insane things, um, asylums, serial killings, uh, cults, uh, Thanksgiving <laughs> um these books all crazy um rabbits and the garden came out i think also a decade ago that was a reprint that we did from a different press because she had this sequel written that hadn't come out yet so it was time that we put both books back out into the universe and i hope people pick them up because they are fantastic also i will promote soft places by betty rocksteady which is a novella slash graphic novel so this time we've done like a graphic novel, novel type of thing. So we have typical prose that then transitions into comic book film act. Really experimental and interesting, and a lot of fun. And when I say fun, it's pretty uh, bleak.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fun in a dark way. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Exactly.
0: I need to pick that one up. Uh, I've written. Written comics for a while, and that's kind of where I got into publishing with with comics. So I definitely want to pick Betty Rocksteady's up. Yeah,
1: Betty's great. She, um, we've done three books of fields now. We began with the Like Jagged Teeth, which had no illustrations in it besides the front cover that she did, and then we did the Writhing Skies, which we did some some illustrations inside, but they didn't really impact. The um the plot too much and now we've transitioned to soft places which you have to read these illustrations or the story no longer makes sense so it's eventually going to go to just a comic book I guess for the next book I don't know I know she's already uh, looking on the next thing but I'll keep that no wraps for now
0: Ooh, um, intrigue
1: the only other thing I'll promote is um in January uh, we'll launching a Kickstarter it'll feel ghoulish. So, like, nothing too crazy, just last year we did this thing on the website where people could pay, like, one payment up front, and then they would subscribe to every book we put out in 2022. So we were doing that again, but through Kickstarter, just to hopefully gain more excitement,
0: basically. Oh, that's cool. That's an awesome idea. I will 100% pledge to that.
1: I am holding you to that. (laughs)
0: trust me i will you'll see my email show up um i really appreciate you coming on the show and chatting uh everybody check out ghoulish books um everywhere online there's ghoulish books discord i hang out in it uh all the time it's a cool place to go to uh you can check my twitter max's twitter uh to find the invite but i think it's also just plastered all over the internet so you can find your way there uh max super awesome chatting with you
1: thank you so much
0: That was my chat with Max Booth III, author and publisher. Uh, he publishes books uh, at Ghoulish Books. Make sure you go to linktree slash Books. You'll be able to find a link to every single thing that uh, Max and I talked about in that podcast, including his book, Abnormal Statistics, which you can pre order as of the recording of this. It's probably out already now, depending on if you're listening to this in the future. It's out from a publisher called Apocalypse Party. You can also get links to Hairs in the Hedgerow by Jessica McHugh, Perfect Union by Cody Goodfell and Soft Places by Betty Rocksteady thank you so much to Max for coming on to chat and giving me some stuff to think about as far as my own writing goes and just writing in general that's one of the reasons why I record the show as you know Thank you very much to you for listening. Swing by my website, austinrwilson.com, to check out my work where it's been published. Uh, I just recently got two stories accepted to be in the Valentine's Day anthology coming out from Black Hair Press in 2023. So look out for that. I'll be ha- uh, sharing links of that on my Twitter, which is austinrwilson, also ledger score under podcast, and probably also on the Discord that we talked about, Max's Ghoulish Books Discord, which you can also find a link to on the link tree that I mentioned mentioned. mentioned i hang out in that discord pretty regularly not really sure what other places i'm going to be at online as far as social media goes than the ones already mentioned if twitter ends up dying who knows but watch out for me in all those places and watch out for new episodes of ledger coming at you very soon thanks